You know, when we see a video clip of a news event on TV or online, and we we see, here's, here's the show, something happened, somebody says something, there's an accident or something, and, and you see this 30-second clip, and you hear, you see and hear what happened. Then, after the video clip is over, these commentators come on to tell you what you just saw and to try to spin your understanding of it in a way that they would like you to see it. So if it's a political commentator, of course they spin left, they spin right, they spin up, they spin down, whatever it is. But whether it's political or social or economic or any other way, there are evidently, and we know for ourselves, that there are many ways of understanding or interpreting any event. Well, it's not only do we hear their spin on this, but they talk for 30 minutes, about a 30-second video clip, and at the end of those 30 minutes, you have no idea what you saw. You can't remember what you saw, and you don't know what to think about it, or how to believe it. Well, we have been receiving such information since we were born. You know, our parents or other caregivers doing the best they could. They fed us their understanding of the way things are. And, you know, they, as soon as they could, they enlisted relatives and neighbors and teachers and eventually the government gets involved and everybody gets involved in trying to spin your understanding of life's events in a direction favorable to them. Sadhu Tejaniya says that a yogi, someone who's interested in awakening, has three tasks. The first is to hear right view. The second is to establish wise attention on this right view. And the third is to persevere with that awareness. So what is right view? Well, in the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, which is the path of practice to be developed in order to free oneself from suffering. Last, last night I spoke about all the different kinds of suffering and how to be aware of them. And I offered some right views, some ways of understanding these tormenting, painful states of mind. But in the Buddha's Eightfold Path, Right view is the first of two factors for developing wisdom. There's right view, which is skillful way of understanding experience. And then there's right thought, or right intention, which, for our practice, is your attitude of mind. Right attitude, I might say. So right thought, or right view, I mean, is really... From the Buddhist perspective, it's how to understand experience in a way that leads to less suffering or the end of suffering. 
wrong view would be mistakenly believing about something in a way that causes suffering to yourself or others. So that's the that's the characteristic of right, right view, right thought, right mindfulness, right anything in the Noble Eightfold Path, is that it leads towards or tends towards less suffering. That was the Buddha's whole bottom line, is, as he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. If you know suffering thoroughly, then you know what the end of suffering is. So tonight I want to speak about the Buddha's spin on things, or I should say the Buddha's right view. So that yeah. so that if we hear it, we can sometimes apply it in our practice. And if we practice effectively, eventually we will confirm the wisdom of that view or that way of understanding because we will suffer less. So one time Sariputta, who is or was the Buddha's second in the Buddha, second to the Buddha in uh, terms of wisdom at the time of the Buddha, he was speaking with some fellow monks, and they were saying, "Well, we heard about this right view, and that it's important to establish this right view." And so they said, "Well, what what is right view, or how do we establish right view?" which seems reasonable, if it's really necessary and urgent to hear it in order to practice effectively and correctly, we should want to know. So they asked, and Sariputta said, there's two elements to establishing right view in your own mind, in your own heart. The first is, you have to hear what right view is from someone else. We're all educated. We've gone to school for, you know, 8, 10, 8, 12, 16, or more years to learn how to solve problems. And if somebody says, we've got a problem, we got the confidence to figure out how to solve it. But the Buddha said, or sorry, Buddha said, not this one. <laughs> not this, not the suffering of the heart and mind. Because it is so subtle or so counterintuitive that we have to hear it from someone else. Then we can practice, and we'll see for ourselves whether it's so. Now, that sounds kind of like, really? Do we have to do that? Well, let me just remind you how we have already heard right view about other things and believe it totally. You know, uh, if we stayed here long enough every day, we'd see the sun rise over there, cross overhead, and set over there. A few hours later, it rises over there again, crosses overhead, sets over there. <coughs> Every day. From our direct observation, we would say the sun goes around us, goes around the earth. That's what our direct observation, that's the only way to understand our direct <coughs> observation. But there have been those in human history who have a little more refined view of things, and they have studied the stars as well as the moon, as well as the sun, and they have concluded that the sun doesn't go around the earth. The earth spins on its axis, creating day and night, and in fact it's the earth that goes around the sun once a year. 
That's right view. And we've been told that right view ever since we were little, little tykes, right? We've been told, <laughs> the sun doesn't go around the earth. The earth spins on an axis, creating day and night. And we've been told that insistently, incessantly, repeatedly, and we believe it. We've even been tested on it, and we all pass the test. And yet, most of us have never observed it, never have confirmed it through our own observation. And yet, we are absolutely confident that it's so. Aren't we? Does anybody doubt that? So we can, we, can, we can trust, we have learned how to trust others' opinions contrary to our own best empirical experience. Right? Okay. So now I'm going to share some of the Buddha's right views with you. Now you don't have to believe them. They're true, but you don't have to believe them. You don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. Okay, so I'm going to share... Oh, the, the hearing right view from another is the first of the elements to establish right view in your own heart. And then to develop wise attention based on that right view. Okay. So, a few right views tonight. Some skillful views of the Dhamma... You know, I've spoken about taking refuge in the Dhamma, and the Dhamma is both the teachings of the Buddha. But the teachings of the Buddha, as I mentioned, the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught the Dhamma, and the Dhamma that the Buddha taught was pointing to the truth, or what can be observed in our hearts, in our minds, in our relationships. So we could say that the Dharma is the truth. The Dharma is the nature of things. It's what's natural. It's what can be observed. It's what can be confirmed through our own experience. So when we when we hear the Dhamma, we're hearing what those who have paid very careful attention have understood to be the way things are and the way things come to be the way they are. So when we hear the Buddha's teachings, we're hearing someone point to what has been observed by those who may have a more refined, a more continuous, a more detailed understanding or able to just see more comprehensively what it is we're looking at. We're looking at this body and mind and what do we understand about it? It suffers. We know that. And yet a lot of what we try to do or do in order to be free from suffering doesn't always work. Sometimes we get ourselves in more trouble. So we can say that studying the Dharma or practicing the Dharma is really studying nature, studying the natural phenomena of this body, the natural phenomena of the mind, the natural functioning of the mind, all the natural activities of the mind, studying the nature of the mind and the nature of the body. So when, as I mentioned last night, when some of these challenging mental states arise and we're willing to observe them, what we're observing is the nature of fear. We're observing, we're experiencing, we're, we're feeling into the nature of desire or the nature of joy, the nature of knowing, the nature of uh, bliss, whatever it is that you're experiencing. 
it's not that it's something unique to me or to you. Yeah, it's it's happening in this process at the time that I can observe it. It's happening in your process at the time you can observe it. But the the, the nature of these uh, experiences are universal. We all have similar natures, if you will. So we're really scientists of our heart, and mind, our body. So understanding this, then all that occurs, all that we ever experience is natural. It's not unnatural. It's not a mistake. It's not not supposed to happen. It happens due to causes and conditions, just like the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the tides. Happens due to causes and conditions. So the Buddha pointed this out. He said that, you know, all that occurs is brought about by causes and conditions. Even if we don't understand the extent the vast network of causes and conditions that give rise to this moment, we can be sure that it's not accidental. And the Buddha pointed out that our lives are governed by the natural laws of the universe. Now, Western scientists have studied the biological laws, have have discovered and have observed and have articulated the biological laws that we understand about life forms. We know that seeds produce fruit. An apple seed produces an apple tree, and an apple tree produces more apples with seeds. You don't plant an apple seed and get a banana tree. It doesn't work that way. It's not because we can't make it happen, it's just that's not the way things are. So we can see that the biological laws of living things including ourselves. What is born, lives out its life, eventually dies. Nobody, no, no living thing ever escapes that law. Not, not possible. This is just the way things are. We could say that the biological laws of genetics, the biological laws of epigenetics, the biological laws of seeds, of every living thing, have been observed and articulated. It's not like some smart human uh, back there in the 1600s said, I think I'll make a new law. I think, I think I'll make it so that apple, apple seeds produce apple trees. Rather, the natural laws are an articulation of what has been observed and understood by those who most comprehensively observe and can understand. Just as there are physical laws of nature, the physical laws of nature, one, for example, is gravity. Now, nobody invented gravity. It's been around long before humans ever landed on this earth. But it wasn't until, who's that guy under the apple tree? Dunk. Newton. Huh? Newton. You know, it's okay, Fig Newton. He, he kind of, he saw the apple fall from the tree, and he, he kind of put things together with what he knew, and he said, ah, oh, there must be this law of gravity. Well, that's what he called it. He didn't make it happen. He didn't invent it. But through his observation, he was able to articulate what he understood. And we now understand the law of gravity is a natural law. Now, you don't have to believe that. But if you don't, 
and you kind of try to live your life contrary or in opposition to the laws of nature, you suffer. So if you, if you try to live in opposition to the law of gravity, those who tried that in the past didn't pass on their genes to us. Okay? okay. So, that's the lesson to be learned. If we live in opposition to the laws of nature, we're going to suffer. If we can understand the laws of nature and live in alignment with them, we'll suffer less and maybe not suffer. Okay, so the Buddha understood through his own observation the natural laws that govern the unfolding of the mind. Western science is just beginning to uh, study some of what the Buddha learned, you know, those neuroscientists in Madison and on the West Coast, and they're getting their ideas of what kind of research to do. They're getting their ideas of how to figure out the mind from Buddhist monks. They're getting ideas, they're talking to these Buddhist monks and saying, what do you know about the mind? And they say, blah, 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 and so they try to test it. And they're coming up with some unbelievably elaborate tests to confirm what the Buddha observed in his own mind 2,500 years ago. So what did the Buddha understand about the unfolding of the mind? Well, one thing is that when we're born, we don't come into the world with a blank slate of our mind. We come into the world with both a genetic heritage, we know that biologically, but we also come into this world with a karmic heritage. We are as much a karmic being as we are a genetic being. Western science hasn't caught up with that yet, but Buddhist science has. So when we, when we, when we hear this, we can understand, oh, there may be something to look into here. And the Buddha said that when we're born, we're born with this karmic heritage that includes what are called mental legacies. Okay. That means that, you know, when you, when you see little, little babies just after they come out of the womb, how long does it take before you start to see their personality? A couple hours? <laughs> I mean, because they're different. You know, even twins can be different. Certainly siblings are very different. And they have very different temperaments, very different qualities of heart and mind, even at birth. So where did they come from? Where did this come from? It's not random, it's not haphazard. You know, apple seeds don't produce banana plants. So the karmic heritage, you know, the mental legacies, are, as the Buddha would understand it, what has remained in the mind as when one life comes to an end and the next life takes up its position, then whatever has been developed in the mind is carried on. Well, let's not get too esoteric about this. Have you noticed how enduring your personality traits are? I mean, when did you first start being the kind of personality that you are now. You know, when you were three, four, 
five, six. You know, and we don't, I mean, we, we don't change that much. We can work on it a lot. And we can, we can, you know, we can, you know, behavior modification is really powerful. But inside, there's this pretty, we could call it the default setting. Or just what I, how I term it. It's like we have a default setting around both the wholesome qualities of mind and the unwholesome qualities of mind. For example, I, it seems, was not born with a patience gene. <laughs> it's like, it is my default deficiency. I just don't have patience. But my first, my first reaction, response to anything is impatience. It's just, it's just... And I've tried, I've practiced a lot of patience. I, <laughs> I know it's my lifetime, you know, goal is to be patient. And it's still hard, you know. And, you know, when we think of person, Buddhist personality types, you know, there's the aversive, the aversive type, the sensuous type, and the deluded type. Do you know which one you are? Aversive types? Mm-hmm. Uh, desire types or sensuous types? Mm-hmm. And we know. Deluded types? How do you know? <laughs> okay. Well, we, I mean, just playfully, we can even, we know. We know that we have more of a preponderance of one or the other, or maybe you're totally balanced and you have all three of them equally. But nevertheless, we can see that we have these. But we also have wholesome qualities of mind. You could say, uh, you know, the paramis, which are the wholesome qualities of mind, like generosity, loving kindness, understanding, patience, uh, truthfulness, non-reactivity, resolve, energy. We also have kind of a baseline default setting of all these too. So some of you might find I myself very generous. Easy to be generous. Just take every opportunity to be generous. Other people can't find any reason to be generous. Just not not in their inherent nature or not that much. Other people, loving kindness just oozes out of them. Me, I think I got some but sometimes it's pretty hard to access. Nevertheless, uh, we, we all have our, uh, some kind of baseline around uh, all of these wholesome qualities. And if you don't know what your baseline of generosity and ethical conduct and truthfulness and equanimity and uh, uh, resolve and energy is, if you, don't, if you don't know what yours is, ask who you live with. They know <laughs> So, so the Buddha said, what we are observing, what we observe, is a lot of this baseline mentality. And as we practice, we can cultivate, you know, more wholesome skills, and we can decondition less wholesome skills. And that's what we're doing, actually. Because all Dharma practices, whatever Dharma practice you do, whether it's mindfulness of or any of the paramis, or mindfulness, or insight, or concentration, tranquility, they all cultivate wholesome qualities of mind, and at the same time, decondition or suppress unwholesome qualities of mind. One of the other laws, natural laws, that the Buddha understood about the, the mind is called the laws of Dharma, the natural laws of the Dharma, like the Four Noble Truths. 
The Buddha didn't invent the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha looked at life, saw the conditions, understood them with this, the power of his collected mind, and articulated these truths, the Four Noble Truths, as the way things are. Or the, for, for those of you who know the, the, the wheel of dependent origination, the twelve links of dependent origination, very elaborate description of how the past conditions the present, the present conditions the future, and what we do in the future conditions further cycling on. This is a law. It's not like, it's a good theory. It's like if you, if you hear this truth of the Buddhas and you look at your own life through the lens of this or you practice you'll see how accurate it is in not controlling your life, but at least describing the way things unfold in your life. So those are some right views of Dharma that I wanted to share. I'd like to share some right views or skillful views on meditation practice, because there are a lot of different kinds of meditation. Not just Buddhist meditation, but other traditions, other uh, cultural uh, practices that are something like meditation. Uh, certainly other religions have their, their uh, meditation practices. But in every case, whatever meditation practice you're doing, in every moment, something's being known. Whether it's loving-kindness, if you're doing loving-kindness, in every moment you're trying to generate loving-kindness. If it's compassion, you're trying to generate compassion. If it's you know, forgiveness, you're trying to generate that. If it's mindfulness, you're trying to, be, you're trying to recognize the present moment's experience. In every moment, something is being known. So, what we're doing in our, in our meditation practice is we're not trying to create something so much as to recognize what it is that's happening. This is an insight practice. If you want to do loving-kindness, then of course you're trying to generate loving-kindness. Now, awareness practice, like we're practicing here, is remembering, that's the function of mindfulness, the function of sati or mindfulness, is to remember, to observe, and to recognize the present moment's experience. And the present moment's experience is called the object, the object of awareness. So the field of our mindfulness practice in insight meditation is our own body and our own mind. Yes, we may see other things outside of us. We may hear other experiences outside of us. But as soon as they come in through one of the sense doors, through the ear, into the mind, through the eye, into the mind, through the tongue, into the mind... As soon as it comes into in through a sense door, it's in the mind. So we could say everything that we experience is in the mind. Everything. We think it's out there in the form of what we see. We think it's out there in the form of what we hear. But actually, it's only in our mind that we're able to experience any of these things. So the field of our practice is really our own body and mind. The Buddha, the Buddha once gave a, a short discourse. I think it's called the short discourse, where he said, there are only six things that you ever experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and some kind of thought process. That's it. There's nothing else. 
You'd think with only six things to, to recognize, we wouldn't have much trouble. But it's really difficult to recognize that all we're experiencing is just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, in some form of thought process, ideation. All beings are experiencing these same six phenomena. But not all beings are practicing awareness of them. So these objects, or what it is that we are aware of, can be anything. I, I didn't bring a list with me. But I have a list of, a partial list of objects. There are all kinds of sensations in the body. There's all kinds of mental activity in the mind and feelings in the heart. And any of them can be known. And since they can be known, they can become the object of awareness. Because of objects, we can develop awareness. Without objects, if the mind doesn't have an object, there's no awareness. They arise simultaneously. Of these two objects and awareness, which do you think is most important? Awareness. Objects change, don't they? There's sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, pleasant, unpleasant, gross, subtle, you know, a familiar novel. And we often, as I mentioned previously, we often don't get to choose what we experience. The mind is not yours. But you've got to deal with it. You've got to be responsible for it. And so, even though we can't escape knowing objective experience, our suffering or freedom or, or non-suffering lies in the awareness in the heart. The things themselves don't cause suffering. It's how we are relating to them that cause suffering. So when we practice in order to understand suffering and the end of suffering, we're paying attention to our mind because it is in the mind that we suffer. We're just never going to be able to control the world, control others' behaviors, control the environment to not have experiences that could potentially cause suffering. There's always going to be bad weather and there's always going to be difficult people. There's always going to be difficult states of mind, let alone physical sensations in the body. There's always going to be them. So we're not, it's not that we're trying to avoid them or trying to fix, fix them so that they never arise. But rather, in this practice, we're looking at the mind's relationship to all of these experiences, understanding that the suffering is in the mind and its relationship to the objects that we're aware of. So we can see that meditation, the calming the mind down and growing in understanding, is the work of the mind. Yes, we have a body. Yes, we want to take care of the body. We want to take our vitamins, get our exercise, get our aerobics. We want to, we want to do all that just because it's a vehicle, in, it, in part because it's the vehicle of our mind. And if we take care of the body, then we suffer less. Nevertheless, <clears throat> meditation is the work of the mind. And one of, uh, I didn't, I don't have any copies of the book here, but Sayadaratajaniya's second book in between the first and the third that, you, that we have here. It's called, Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And in it, he's talking about the fact that 
just being mindful is not enough. It's, it takes understanding. It takes right view. It takes understanding. It takes a, amount of, a certain amount of faith. It takes energy. It takes stability of mind in order to be aware, in order to uh, uh, live with this process of awareness. I've mentioned right views. Um, I've mentioned right attitudes uh, in practice, in our, in, our, in our instructions. And one right attitude that I point to frequently and really encourage you to remember is to have an attitude of interest in everything. Not hyper-vigilance. Not, you know, kind of... There's, there's interest, and then there's fascination. Fascination has a little bit of attachment to it, like, ah. Interest is just, what is this? What is this? What is this? Curiosity, similar to interest. But curiosity can also have an agenda. I wonder if... <laughs> where interest is just, what's this? What's this? <clears throat> so when we, when we observe with interest, we're not trying to create any experience. We're not trying to get rid of any experience. We're not even judging any experience. But we're observing it with interest just to see what it will, re- what it will reveal. So that we can learn about this experience. Because as I mentioned last night, it's not you who removes these difficult states of mind. Wisdom does the job. And wisdom emerges from careful observation, just like the sun and the moon. One of our colleagues, Mark Epstein, he writes about um, Buddhist practice and psychoanalysis a lot. Written several books. And the Buddha said, those who grow in wisdom have asked a lot of questions. Not of others so much as of themselves. So Mark writes, the Buddhist view, the Buddhist right view, has consistently demonstrated that it is the view or the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether any given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. To work something through means to change one's view. If we instead just try to change our emotional reaction or relationship to something, we may achieve some short-term success, but we still are caught by the force of attachment and aversion to the feelings which we were trying to get free from in the first place. Now let me put this in English. (laughs) Uh, When we, for example, find ourselves entangled in aversion, you know, some irritation, some disliking, maybe hatred. And it's really firing us up. We can get some short-term relief by practicing loving-kindness. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free of suffering. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you, may you be free of suffering somewhere else. <laughs> so we, you know, we can do that, and we can calm our mind down so that we're not so hot. But, 
even though we calm our mind down, the source of that aversion, that holding on, is still in the mind. So, insight practice would have us look at that suffering, look at that aversion, so that we can come to an understanding of it. And we can come to understand not just, oh, this is suffering, or this, I'm so upset, or I'm so angry, but we come to understand who is it that's angry? Who is it that's suffering with that anger? And this is where insight goes every time, is what sense of yourself are you holding on to that's causing you to suffer? Because we have these ideas about ourselves. Well, I should be this, and they should treat me like that. I am like this, don't you recognize? You know? And when we don't get that feedback, in whatever way, then that sense of self feels threatened. So we get irritated, we get defensive, we get you know, angry, we get manipulative, we do all kinds of things to protect that sense of ourself. And all that we do is suffering. Okay, so insight practice looks at this experience of anger. And it sees the source, it sees the hurt, it sees the sense of self. It comes to understand this sense of self is a conditioned phenomenon. It's not real. It's not substantial. It's not enduring. It has arisen due to causes and conditions, none of which are me. Okay, so I'll tell you a story. So after I'd been teaching for a few years, I, I realized I should fly on the same airline all the time to get frequent flyer points. So I chose United. They go everywhere I go. And uh, so I used to fly a lot. I mean, I still fly a lot. And I had tons of miles. And I was premier executive. That's up there. That's a lot of miles. I don't know how many miles it is. 50,000 a year, I guess. For a few years, I was 100,000 miles a year. Well, you get perks. You used to get perks for having this status. Well, one time, I was scheduled to fly from San Francisco to Boston to go to IMS and had my flight. And then, for some reason, and I don't remember why, I found out I was supposed to be there a day earlier than my ticket. So I said, oh, crap. So I called up United Airlines and said, hey, I, I'd, I'd like to fly standby on your, you know, your red eye from San Francisco to Boston. Is there any room? And they said, plenty of room. They had, oh, the, the, the flight's half empty. So I said, great. Went down to uh, the airport. And when I got to the United uh, counter for checking in, it was pandemonium. I said, what the heck's going on here? And they said, oh, one of our flights to Boston got canceled. They're all trying to get on the red eye. And I go, oh, no. Uh, I'd like to fly that flight red eye. And they said, not a chance. Yeah, you're never going to get to, you know, it's, it's overbooked already. So, yeah, but just let me go up to the gate. This is when you could go up to the gate with a, with a standby ticket. Just let me go up to the gate, just in case. And they said, Man, well, okay, you can go up. So I went up and I told the people at the gate, you know, that, uh, you know I'd like to, I'm flying standby. You know, if there's an empty seat on that plane, I've really got to get to Boston in the morning. I, I'd, I'd really like to. And by the way, I'm a frequent flyer. I'm premier, premier executive. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, okay. Yeah, well, there's three people that want to fly standby. I go, what? I said, okay. So I just, they just go sit over there. So I just went sitting down. So they started loading people and they loaded, you know, they called the, the, the rows that were supposed to go on. And then as they got everybody on, they said to the three of us that wanted to fly standby, they said, oh, why don't you come down the, the, the walkway to the door of the plane and we'll see if there are any seats. We don't know. We don't think there's any seats, but there might be. So they got everybody sitting down, checked the toilets, nobody in the toilet. One seat left. I, I'm the freaking flyer. I'm executive. So I said, oh, there's one seat up there. You can go sit up there. I said, oh, great. I went up there and there's two big football players, you know, sitting, you know, and I got the seat between them. It's about this much space. No room overhead for luggage. And I got a big carry-on, but I didn't care. I was on the plane. I was going to fly. I was going to get to Boston in time. So I'm sitting on a plane, whew, okay, just kind of settling in for the six hours. And I see that, oh, they found another seat for the second person, you know, somewhere. So they brought the second person flying standby and put him down in that seat, and he was going to Boston too. So then they did the, you know, the last call. I say, okay, this flight is going to Boston, right? Anybody that's not planning to go to Boston, let us know because you, you shouldn't go. Somebody in first class said, hey, wait, I'm not going to Boston. <laughs> they got up. They escorted him off the plane. And they said to the last person who was flying standby, oh, we have a seat for you. Come on. You can sit in the first class seat. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Hey, hey, I'm the senior executive. I'm the senior. I, I should get that seat. I should get that seat. They said, you got to see. What are you complaining about? We're going to Boston. Sit down and zip lips. Down with duct tape. Mm. Oh, the first half hour of that flight, I was so upset. I was like, what? How could they give that? How could they give that first class seat to that guy? He's, yeah, ah, ah, mm, mm. <laughs> then, after about a half hour, I said, okay, i got another five and a half hours of this. <laughs> I better get with the program. And I just said, I'm on the plane. What the heck? I'm on the plane. I- I'm going to get to Boston. I'm going to get to Boston. It's okay. I got to Boston. It was okay. I, what happened? As long as I was identified with my sense of myself as being the premier executive that is due all kinds of entitlement and, and you know, perks, as long as I was identified with that sense of myself, I suffered as soon as I let go of it and said, hey, I'm on the plane. What's the, pro- what's the problem? I'm still a premier executive. I still got all my miles. I still got all my perks, but just not right now. That's what's going on all the time. All the time we suffer. Anytime we suffer. We're holding on to some idea of ourselves that is causing us to suffer. And if we can see that, if we can see what that sense of self is, we won't have any trouble letting go because we want to stop suffering. Well, this is what insight practice reveals to us if, if we're paying close attention. Well, if we're not just rationalizing our suffering or justifying our suffering or being defensive about our suffering, but we're really concerned about our suffering, then we'll see. We will see how we're viewing ourselves in some solid, fixed form And that's what we need to let go of. That's what we need to see through.
And it's insight practice that sees through it. And in this way, we, we're not just getting symptomatic relief. We are kind of uprooting or disassembling that sense of self. It's not because there really is a sense of self. There, there's, there's no real self that you've got to let go of anyway. It's just this idea we have about ourselves. <clears throat> so this is the practice of Vipassana. This is the understanding we want to have of how it is, we're, why we're paying attention to suffering. Some people say, why should I meditate? Just sit here and watch, watch what's going on. Jeez, my body hurts, my mind suffers. Meditation just causes me to suffer. No, no. Actually, meditation reveals the suffering that you're hiding from. With all of your activity, all of your seeking and getting and having and doing and becoming and entertaining and whatever, keeps you from actually seeing how much you're suffering. And when you stop and you look and you see that, then you can let go. Then you can understand the wisdom of letting go. So the way to understand this development of wisdom and liberation is that when we willingly observe the way things unfold in our own heart and mind, then we will learn about the nature of suffering. And we'll learn about this um, creation or how we construct this sense of self. If we don't know, if we don't hear this, if we don't hear this kind of understanding, this is what insight practice does, how could we think from our own observation that this amount of suffering is going to lead to happiness? Really, think about it. If we just, if somebody just said, figure it out for yourself, and you see all the suffering, how would you know what to do? That's why we want to have some gratitude for the Buddha, because here's somebody who did the work for us, figured out how to look at this mind-body conundrum, this inevitable suffering that all beings experience, and saw how to reach the end of suffering, and then shared it with us. This is right view. This is the view that leads to the end of suffering. It takes information, getting the information from the Buddha. It takes using it intelligently, and it takes practicing so that we can confirm it through our own insight, through our own empirical observation. Just to read the book doesn't do it. You can read all the Dharma books you want. That's not going to transform the heart. It gives you ideas, it gives you clues, it gives you right views, but we still have to do the work for ourselves. Because to, 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 you know, when we experience, like I mentioned last night, you know, when we experience one of these unwholesome states of mind, one of these very difficult, challenging, painful, fear, depression, anxiety, self-judgment, jealousy, envy, whatever it is, when we experience it, it's like we're lost in it. Being lost in any of these suffering states of mind is a very different experience than thinking about your anger, thinking about your jealousy, thinking about your envy, thinking about your... And that is a very different experience than being mindful of jealousy, envy, anger. So, 
being angry, thinking about your anger, and being aware that anger has arisen are three very different experiences. But they all require, they all rest on anger being present. So it's just how you treat, how you work with these difficult states of mind. They're going to arise. How you work with them makes all the difference in the world. <coughs> because to observe them and to recognize, oh, anger has arisen, fear has arisen. You know, entitlement mentality of being a frequent flyer has arisen. <laughs> you know, and watch that and observe that. Then we see how to reach the end of suffering, where that suffering comes from. When we observe with this kind of right view, when we practice awareness with this kind of right view, it's not like we're looking for what we heard. It's more like you look over the map, you know, before you make a trip. You look over the map of where you're going. You know, you want to you know, go to some city you've never been before. And you look it over and you see all kinds of options, different places to visit in the city. But sometimes when you go to the city, forget the map, just wander around. When you come to certain experiences, certain places, certain buildings, certain things, you'll recognize, oh, that's what they were talking about. I read about that. I know about that. The same thing with our practice here. We hear the Dharma. We don't need to go looking for it. If we just pay attention to our own experience, when we come across these states of mind, when we stumble upon wholesome states of mind, or we find ourselves engaged with unwholesome states of mind, then we'll remember, oh, now I remember. That's what they were talking about. This is how you do this. This is what you do. So that when you hear of the possibility of the end of suffering, it may sound like far away. It may sound like, what a, what a hopeful you know, project. What a, what a good idea. And yet, we all find moments, even in a retreat, nine days, we all find moments when we stop suffering. We want to take notice of that. Whatever it is, just the calmness of mind, the clarity of mind, joy arises in the mind, moments of, life's okay. Not because you're deluded, distracting yourself from the experience. You're fully present with just the way things are. This is the hook. This is the, this is the dessert of Dharma practice, if you will. It's what keeps us coming back. You know, nobody ever comes to practice and, and, and just has a breeze, doesn't, doesn't have to suffer. I don't think everybody that I've ever talked to suffers. But there's two kinds of suffering. You know, it's like when we grab on to an idea of ourselves, or we grab on to something that we rely on for our uh, security, our safety, our sense of well-being, our idea of ourself. It's as if we squeeze our fist, we clamp our mind around this idea like squeezing our fist. And if you hold your fist, squeeze tight, long enough, initially it's going to be painful, and after a little while it's going to go numb, and after a little bit more time, you're not going to feel anything. And you're going to walk around like this, holding on for your life, and you don't feel anything. And then if somebody says, and what are you holding on for? And you go, I'm holding on? Oh, why don't you let go? And then when you try to let go, 
and you go, and you haven't opened your you haven't opened your hand or your mind in you know the last ten years. <laughs> really hurts. All the all the stored up tension, gripping, is revealed by le- learning how to open and let go. Well, what we're doing here in practice is we're opening our minds, we're opening our hearts. And what we're discovering is long-held holding. It's reflected in the body as pain. Painful, you know, places and planes where... Painful places where you didn't even know you had places. You know? And it's not that the sitting or the meditation is causing the pain. The pain is there. We have just become numb to it. We've been holding on so long. And now as we open up and we come upon this, then this is it's the pain of... It's the, it's the suffering that comes from letting go. So this is the suffering that leads to more suffering, grasping, and opening up and letting go is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So we want to understand this about the kind of pain, physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain, <coughs> that we're feeling here. We're not, we're not getting ourselves deeper in a hole. We're actually releasing long-held holding. This is the way to understand our pain. When we understand things in this way, we could say that we're seeing our life through the eyes of the Dharma. This is the way it is. This is the way things have come to be. This is the way that leads to the end of suffering. Rather than seeing things through our family conditioning, our cultural conditioning, our political conditioning, our educational conditioning, we start to see things through the eyes of the Dharma. Dharma deconditioning, or Dharma conditioning. And this is what the Buddha said. We need to hear right view from another before we're going to find it within ourselves. So let's take a moment and let the words settle into our heart. Vipassana always steps back to see things more clearly, whereas concentration practice dives in and gets absorbed in the object or experience. Stepping back and watching allows understanding to arise. And when you're aware intelligently, this will help you to deepen your practice and to come to new understandings. Ultimately, It will help you to fulfill the objective of mindfulness meditation, which is Vipassana insights. This is the objective of mindfulness meditation, to gain Vipassana insight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.